My colleague Ewan Sweeney will lead us in our scripture reading today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 43 and the first eight verses. Over the last few weeks, we have been spending our Sunday morning in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And as we come to chapter 43, it contains for us wonderful news of the love and grace of God. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba and your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do to hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. As we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, for many of us, it will be a slightly different Thanksgiving. In some states across the nation, they are limited to the number of folks they can have in a home, particularly California moving north towards Oregon and Portland and the northwest. And this past week, I received an email which I thought was very creative, and I wanted to share it with you this morning, and it reads like this. Dear Aunt Rebecca, since we are restricted to six people in our home for Thanksgiving this year, but 30 people are allowed to attend a funeral, Tom and I will be holding a funeral service for our pet turkey. He is scheduled to pass away a few days before Thanksgiving. Please come and join us. Refreshments will be available. <laughs> and when I saw that, like you, I laughed and smiled and thought, what a wonderfully creative way to respond to the tough year that it's been. And as we settled down for Thanksgiving, surrounded by family and friends, of course, we are reminded of the tradition. And Thanksgiving was first held, as many of you are aware, back in 1621, November that year, when pilgrims and early settlements gave thanks to God, inviting family, friends, neighbors for a meal as they expressed their deep appreciation and gratitude for a good corn harvest that year. And of course, over the years, it has been formalized. And George Washington, of course, formalized it, and it has been celebrated pretty much since when he brought forth this proclamation. Whereas, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. 
And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and their happiness. Back then, in October 1789, like many of our forefathers, Washington naturally expressed his thanks and gratitude to God for his multiple blessings upon us. And as we come to Isaiah chapter 43, we see that similar theme of gratitude and thanksgiving running through this passage. Now, if you've been with us over recent weeks, you will be aware of the book of Isaiah. And if you're hearing this for the first time, allow me to take two or three minutes to paint the picture so you're very familiar with the context of what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is one of five major prophets in the Old Testament. They're major because of the length of their books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. He's considered a major prophet not simply because of the length of his book, but he talks of God in majestic, lofty terms. He encourages his readers to understand God as he truly is in all of his love and grace and unsurpassed majesty. And as Isaiah focuses on the love and grace of God, he also talks of a day when a Messiah would come. And as we leave Thanksgiving and grow, move towards Christmas, you will see on Sundays and in the course of the week several readings from Isaiah that speak in prophetic terms of the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah is also known for four major passages that talk of the sacrificial death of Christ and why that is important. And with all of that as background, there is one more thing you need to know as we begin to immerse ourselves in this passage. Isaiah is split into two sections. Chapters 1 to 39 highlight for us the political and historical context of the day. And most of you are educated enough in the Old Testament to know that the first the Assyrians had come to over to the west and then made their way south and conquered the northern tribe of Israel. The southern tribe was Judah. And in those first 39 chapters, Isaiah writes in terms of national and international upheaval and wars and rumors of wars. And those were, as you can imagine, tough days to live in. But in chapter 40, to the end of the book, everything changes. As Isaiah introduces a note of optimism, a sense of expectation and anticipation. Because after the conquering of the northern kingdom of Israel and then subsequently the southern kingdom of Judah, people were taken into captivity and slavery and the elites of their day, the leadership, the well-off, were moved in slavery and captivity back to ancient Babylon. And they were used as slave labor. And after 70 years, God set them free. And they returned to Jerusalem, 
to set up an independent nation once again. And that's where you come into the story in Isaiah chapter 43. The people have been set free. They are returning on the long journey home. And here is Isaiah writing to them. And notice how he begins at verse 1. He's speaking into their lives people who have lots of questions, who are delighted that they have discovered their own freedom, they can determine their own future, they can be a nation once again, but they have multiple questions. Questions that I think some of our forefathers had as they crossed the Atlantic. Can you imagine pushed into a wooden sailing vessel to cross the Atlantic for six weeks, asking, where will we live? What kind of home shall we have? Where will we raise the children? What about their schooling? What if we don't fit in and this doesn't work out? And you can imagine those endless questions of immigrant families down through the last 200 plus years of moving to the United States. And here is Isaiah answering those questions to the people of God returning to their own homes. They are asking, where shall we live? What will I do for a living? What about the children's education? Will they have friends? Will we be able to be involved in agriculture or fishing? How are we going to survive? And those are questions a number of us have had this year. When back in March we were told, please stay at home, wash your hands, wear a mask, flatten the curve, and in three to four weeks we think we'll be on top of it. Does any of us, any of us envious of our national and state leaders having to deal with a global pandemic? They need our prayers rather than our criticism. They need our help and our encouragement rather than standing aloof and and shaking your heads. It has been a tough year. As Isaiah speaks to his own generation, he says this, But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, if I was to turn that into a contemporary message, it would probably read something like this. But now this is what the Lord said to you. He who created you, Armstrong, and Stuart, and Livingston, and Gordon, and McKinley, and Johnson, and an entire nation of immigrant people, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. As you pass through the waters, I will be there with you. If it comes up to your ankles or your knees or your waist and you become fearful and concerned as it rises above your chest and you're lifting your chin just to make it, I will be right there with you. And some of us have felt this this past year as businesses have closed, as cities across our nation, some of them set on fire and looted, 
voices raised, rightly so, with racial unrest and saying, what is going on? And we have been fearful and concerned about our future. And here is the voice of God, not simply speaking into Isaiah's day, but as Old Testament professors tell us, speaking in a, in a supra-historical fashion. In other words, beyond Isaiah's own day, into every subsequent generation. Listen, but now, fear not. History is not simply about the rising and falling of great empires. But at the heart of history lies the economy of God's unfolding redemptive purposes. Do any of us gathered here this morning, watching the television broadcast or watching in live stream, believe that your life is a thing of chance? Accident? No. At Thanksgiving, we look back with thanksgiving to our parents and our grandparents and our history and heritage. And we rightly give thanks. And there are times we can clearly see the hand of God engineering and orchestrating and bringing to pass His purpose and His will as He sovereignly moves us forward. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Listen carefully, he says. And for some of us, that means this, and I include myself. And often I find God whispering to my soul and saying, Richard, put down your phone, close your laptop or your smart tablet, and spend some time with me. Climb up onto my lap. Share with me your fears and your concerns. Talk to me about missing that contract and your job in jeopardy. Explain to me your fears and your hopes and dreams for your children and your grandchildren. Because I've got you. And what's more, I've got them. I will walk right alongside them. That's why chapter 43 is so popular, as Isaiah says to his generation and ours, but now listen. I would freely confess there are some days I'm so busy, I'm not listening. And when God taps me on the shoulder and forces me to sit down, then I listen. I wonder in the midst of quarantine this past year, when you've no longer had the freedom to go to restaurants and theatres and schools and had time on your hands, did you spend some of that time listening to him? Hold that thought for a moment. And we'll come back to it. Several years ago, I bought a book by one of my favourite writers, Malcolm Gladwell, and many of you are familiar with him. He's written a number of uh, books in the bestseller list. And he wrote one called Blink that really captured my imagination. And his thesis was this. What is it that sets people apart from the normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of people and makes them a genius? And it's a fascinating book. 
And he highlights in those chapters three areas where individuals have risen to the top of their profession. And it begins in the world of art with Pablo Picasso. His dates, as most of you know, are 1881 through 1973. It was when he was 26 years old, the art world will tell you, and they have a bit of a consensus going, that he was at his most creative. 26 years old, he'd risen to the top of his profession with a creative, innovative style. Paul Cezanne, 1839 through 1906, the father of post-impressionist painting, his best work was in his 60s. And in addition to art, think of literature. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. Mark Twain, who wrote Huck Finn. Both books considered quintessentially American in tone and flavor and culture. And they're spectacular writing. Absolutely spectacular. Herman Melville, if you're familiar with Moby Dick, you will know it seems to just pour out of him. He couldn't get it on the page quick enough. He was 32 years old with all of the freshness and the vitality of youth. Mark Twain, in his mid-50s, he developed his writing craft and would rewrite and rewrite and polish and keep going until he had it matured, till he was happy with it. One young, one middle-aged. Orson Welles moving to cinema. Directed Citizen Kane, arguably for many film critics, the best movie of all time. He was 26 years old. His first major movie. Alfred Hitchcock at his best when he produced Vertigo. 59 years old. Had taken the most of his professional career to refine and refine and refine again his ability to produce and direct movies. And why am I telling you this this morning? Why is this important at this point? What on earth does this have to do with Isaiah some 2,700 years ago? Simply this. That whether you are young at your most creative, whether you think of yourself as mature and only now are beginning to rise in your profession, I think most of us understand this, that whenever we step out to accomplish a dream that lies deep within us, we will face critics. Picasso did. People said, he's young and foolish, he'll get over it. He, he might amount to something someday. Paul Cezanne, they criticized the other way, said, quite frankly, he's past his best. Thirty years ago, he may have amounted to something, but not today. The people of Israel moving back to the promised land would face critics. You're telling us that God is faithful? You're telling us he's a God of grace? Where was he 70 years ago when you were taken into captivity? What kind of God is that? Come on. Really? Whenever you step out in faith, you'll receive criticism. If you watch and read television news or social media this week, how many good news stories will be reported? Very few. 
political commentators, whatever side of the political spectrum they are on, will always be negative about the opposition. Easily finding something to criticize about. And in social media, as I observe culture today, I'm finding that growing sense of immediately attacking someone else, pulling them down. Cynicism, criticism. Who do they think they are? We know what happened the last time, don't we? And it goes on and on and on and on. And if you find yourself moving into this season of thanksgiving and you find yourself stepping over the line and giving in to the pathology and parasitic nature of skepticism and cynicism and constantly criticizing others, let me encourage you, please, to pull back from that. Is that what defines us as a nation now? Is that who we are as a people? I don't believe that for a moment. Not for a moment. Rein in the criticism. Children and grandchildren with you on Thursday, encourage them. Tell them how good it is to see them. Tell them you're praying for them. You'll get alongside them. Perhaps Thursday is the time when you sit round the table and you read the opening verses from Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be there with you. How many of our parents and our grandparents needed to hear that when they moved into a new state? A different culture, another environment. It's so easy to go the other way. But as Christian people, we are called to do the other. To encourage, show love, and care and concern and pray. Amidst crippling and debilitating circumstance, that's what we are called to do. That's why Isaiah says, but now, listen, listen carefully. And that takes determination. That takes an intentionality that we sometimes forget. It takes maturity to say, grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will see me home. That's when you're listening to God. That's when you're engaging with Him. That's when you're going about praying on Thursday for individual members of your family, giving thanks for all that God has bestowed upon us and encouraging those around you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. As the passage continues, It continues in that warm, optimistic, encouraging fashion and right on to verse 8 where he said, Lead out those who have eyes but are blind. And you may say, Richard, I was with you up to that point. I think I understand most of what you were saying. You kind of lost me a little in the historical stuff, but I think I've got it. But I'm not a leader. It's not my natural giftedness. It's not something I immediately am drawn to. 
Really? Really? Do people in your family look to you for guidance? They know you worship on a Sunday morning. They're watching to see how you are responding in the midst of a global pandemic. Economy that spiraled down and then up. And we're still very cautious of it. Concerned about your children's education. Family members are watching you, asking themselves, are they responding in a different way? Does that faith they talk about really make a difference to them? Or are they just the same? Does our walk equal our talk? Lead them, is what he says, in prayer. And we know that any leadership is conceived and birthed in relationship. And for Christian people, it is conceived and birthed in a relationship with Him. As day by day, He takes us by the hand and leads and guides and directs us. He leads us. Our job is to follow graciously, faithfully, prayerfully. That's what's going on here. Allow me to give you an example. I shared this with some of you back in the summer, so please forgive me if you think it's too soon, but it seemed certainly apropos to our service this morning. Come with me in your imagination all the way back to Jamestown in 1607 when some of the earliest pilgrims landed and established a settlement there. And that's where, of course, Thanksgiving began. But in the winter of 1609 to 1610, things did not go well. There was about 500 in residency there in Jamestown at that point. And from the October to the spring, the crops had died. There was very little rain The water they had was brackish to the taste, a mixture of salt water and fresh water. They couldn't drink it. And by the spring, from the original 550 were left. Can you imagine what they went through? Can you imagine the questions they asked Can you imagine them prayerfully saying, Father, you promised to bring us to a new world. You told us that the sacrifice and our willingness to obey your call would work out well. And here we are in a new colony and people are dying daily. What on earth is going on? A ship arrived from England with almost no food and no water. And they were let down again. And as they made their way through the spring, it came to June. And on June the 7th, they closed down Jamestown, got on board a vessel, and they began to sail north to Chesapeake Bay, seeking food and water, and were intent to cross back over the Atlantic. And as they sailed towards Chesapeake Bay with hearts that were broken, Unable to understand what was happening. Asking where on earth was God in the midst of all of this. They met two supply ships coming their way. 
with fresh water and food and grain and livestock. And they turned around and went back and continued establishing the Jamestown that we know of in history. And they modelled and defined for us a phrase that has come to define us as a nation that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall not perish from the earth. They modeled it for us. Subsequent generations have modeled it for us as well. And we come today giving thanks for our forefathers and moving into this thanksgiving season to give thanks to God who has preserved us and protected us and blessed us over the years whom Isaiah promised from God himself when you pass through the waters I will be with you do not give up persevere hold on in there that's what defines us It is not easy, and it takes fortitude and perseverance and maturity and growth. And this week, as you gather round the tables to give thanks, remember His goodness and His blessing to us. For we can say this week of all weeks, we are one nation under God. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin to draw this service to a close, we thank you for your goodness and your love down through the centuries. We thank you for everything that you mean to us, for your faithfulness and your grace and your protecting and leading and guiding and directing And Father, we ask that as we celebrate this week, we would do so giving thanks to you, the creator and sustainer of all life, and enable us, please, to move beyond thanksgiving into the wonders of Christmas and all that you have in store for us in 2021. Father, draw us close. Enable us to be obedient to your call. And above all things, to give thanks for your love and your grace towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.